Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. The topic of the podcast today is going to be insurance. So joining us is Jeff Charles, who's Managing Director of Arthur J. Gallagher Canada Limited. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Adam. Happy so to be we here. Jump, yeah, good, good. I'm glad you are. Before we jump into the finer points of uh, insurance, which is definitely an area that you know Aaron and I deal with on a daily basis, but you know probably should know more about, can you kind of tell us how you got to where you are today in your role with AGJ? Yeah, so thanks, Adam. I'll, uh, I appreciate that. It's not often that insurance guys get asked how they got there. And we'll talk, I think, a little bit about that. I come from a privately held business that we sold to Arthur J. Gallagher in 2019. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But going back, I joined the insurance industry in 2010. And I did so as a direct result of what I experienced in 2008. When I came out of school, I participated in, I was in the travel business of all things, and I was providing advice to large organizations that were rewarding their top employees or managing board retreats. And, you know, ultimately I learned that I was broken. I was buying buying travel and selling it to, to executives and groups, but I didn't really recognize that at the time. And so in 2008, the travel industry took it on the chin pretty hard. And it created an opportunity for me to find a space where I belonged, I think, for the long term that had some resilience attached to it. And after some investigation, I wasn't going to be an accountant with all due respect to those. My wife is an accountant and my dad, there's lots of accountants around me. And I wasn't really interested in the mortuary business either at the time. So between death and taxes, I need to find something that was also for sure. Having ah. watched the business kind of mortgages, so. you missed mortgages, yeah. man. Missed I did. Me. I missed my opportunity, Aaron, and I look forward to the offer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so the no, the reality was insurance became this beacon of resilience, and it was a theme of resilience that was really attractive to me, particularly at that time. And I think it's kind of reflecting back at me ten years later, which is a whole other contemplation. That being said. The resilient nature of the insurance business is what was attractive. And so I joined a firm called Jones Brown at the time. It was privately held. The principals, Brian Jones and Don Brown, had built this business and they served uh, great Canadian organizations and families with their commercial and private insurance needs. And I learned the business through you know, the tutelage of them and the partners that I continue to work with. In 2015, we bought the business in a management buyout from the original principals. And we were backed by private Canadian capital to do that. And from 2015 into 2019, we sort of transformed a few elements of the business. And in 2019, we ended up transacting with Arthur J. Gallagher in what has been a transformative event for the organization and for many of us. And so today we are executives in the Arthur J. Gallagher world. It's a you know, 12 to 1300 person organization here in Canada. And you know, we're placing billions of dollars into the marketplace, into the insurance marketplace. And as a, you know, a larger context, you know, it's a 30,000 person business, New York Stock Exchange listed company that excels in, you know, placing insurance in both commercial, personal reinsurance, life and benefits, even commercial adjustment business. It's a viable and meaningful top four insurance broker in the world. So you got lucky. Primary focus. So yes, I got lucky. I would always rather be lucky than good. And we, we got very lucky. And 
the primary focus, Adam, was for myself and the team, the immediate team around me, we kind of developed a thesis some time ago that said it was a double down on resilience. We like capital intensive assets that have long-term revenue prospects. And if we can develop a service proposition to businesses that own or effectively are capital intensive with long-term revenue prospects, and we are their preferred and number one provider, then we will have built a very effective derivative to the same investment returns that a lender or an equity investor might be seeking. And I think it's a little closer to the lending side in that analogy, but we think we've built a derivative around resilient businesses as long as we can continue to provide a best-in-class offering and remain the most competitive or appealing option, then you know we've got a derivative on the same investment thesis. And that's really important, guys, because we aligned, we wanted to align ourselves with our customer. That was always a key tenant in our business was to be really aligned with the customer's best interest. And so if our whole business proposition is based around being aligned with that customer, we're going to perform when they perform. And if we have a direct role in helping them improve performance, whether that's through cost or through financial response in the event of a problem, then we should be in position to benefit and, and profit ourselves. And and that tenant remains true. And what we defined as being a, you know, a resilient business that it was capital intensive and all of those other things, guys, was, you know, real estate kind of jumped off the page as is an area where we want it to be participating for the long term. And I think if you look at the capital, the capital flows that have come into real estate since 2008, they've outpaced those flows that were prior to 2008. And I think we'll continue to see pension, sovereign wealth, and large institutional allocations grow towards fixed assets that yield cash. And you know ultimately, they're going to be capital intensive that have long-term revenue prospects associated with them. So we expect the sector to grow. We expect physical asset investment to grow. And we're positioning ourselves to be the the best service provider alongside that investment thesis so that we're effectively, you know, writing the derivative, but then executing the outcome of that derivative, if that makes sense. So Aaron, does it make sense? (laughs) No, not at all. So (laughs) I'm I'm teasing Jeff. I want to get into some basics and I don't even know how to get into it. So that's the, like, I know what insurance is. And again, this is a commercial real estate podcast. So let's, let's stick to real estate. And if I own an industrial complex or an office, uh, eight unit office building, you know, small office building, I need insurance. I have to have insurance because the lender, me, First National, or any lender, the banks demand it. Why do I have to get insurance? And what is it in my insurance that I need? Yeah, it's a good question. The why do I have to get insurance is, I think, the most important part. And therein lies the philosophical divide that you know we're actively trying to communicate around. And I'll try and speak to this. So there is the contractual obligation element. So I am buying this because I have to. And there's a portion of the marketplace that consumes insurance that feels or acts on that basis. And then there's a portion of the marketplace that is buying because they understand the risk and exposure they have and are hoping to transfer it or to move it away. And when we think about the philosophies that govern that, we then need to also understand, you know, insurance in and of itself. What is its primary function and what is this product? And at the very core, the premise of insurance is to be indemnification. So put you back into the same position you were in prior to an event taking place that has adversely impacted you. And so when we think about it from a property perspective and using your example, Aaron, you own this building and now you want to acquire it. In today's world, in order to acquire it, 
you don't have to have insurance. But the second that you talk to a lender, the lender wants you to have insurance. And so I think that if we're going down the contractually obligated path, we would ask the question, well, why does the lender want the insurance? And maybe it becomes more obvious or it helps highlight the risk. But the lender might say to us, well, I'll give you the money to buy the asset. But I want to know that if something bad happens to the asset, that we have a financial mechanism that will make us whole because something bad could happen to the asset. And two things are typically bad that could happen. One, the property itself is damaged or there's a first party exposure. And so if something bad happened to the to the asset that reduced its value, for example, a fire, if you had a fire that destroyed part of that building, you're going to have a potential loss in value because a, a building that's half burnt is not going to be as valuable as a building that isn't burnt. And if you can show me that marketplace where it is more valuable, then let's, I mean, that's an interesting space and investors might see that as distressed opportunity. But the real issue here is the lender wants to protect against a situation in which the value of their loan that they put out may not be recoupable. And so they're going to require their borrowers to put a financial mechanism in place. The other area where you could be impacted is liability. So the third party exposure. So as the owner of that real estate, you might have a circumstance where you hurt or do property damage to others. So classic in real estate are slip and falls where people are slipping and falling and hurting themselves. And they're doing so on property that they don't own. And they believe the owner of that property has the right or the obligation to make them whole if they're injured or if their things they own were damaged as a result of being on that property. And you'll appreciate that if you think about the different asset classes, there's varying degrees of liability. Retail, commercial retail being probably the most common and frequent for losses relating to liability, right up to what we would consider probably office where there's much less liability from slip and fall. So it's really property and liability that are the main drivers of owning that building. But then you have other sort of what we'll call specialty insurances that might be relevant. There could be environmental issues. Again, you've got a first party and a third party component to environmental related issues, and many of them you can insure. Director and officers. So if you own you know, the asset through a company and there are other parties who are involved in that, i.e. investors, directors and officers carry certain liabilities. There could be errors and emissions insurance where you know you have contractually agreed to manage that asset or that property, both from a financial or from a real property perspective that need to be considered. And so at its primary basis, it's property and liability. And then there are ancillary specialized insurances that would protect the business or the organization that owns those. Does that answer the question about it does. Yeah. It does. I think I, I think I have a follow up related to one item you mentioned there. You mentioned slip and fall in retail being a, uh, I guess, a real hot spot for claims. Is that the number one clause in terms of frequency of payouts that you see from all asset classes and all clauses in insurance policies? Yeah, I would say that frequency and then the forthcoming severity on real estate is from slip and fall liability. So like we see the highest frequency and some of the most severity coming in that asset class versus that of industrial or that of office or residential, I would say is second where we have issues. And then I would say sort of industrial and office. And then for some of the, I guess we'll call them less popular clauses, do you get pushback from clients on some of the clauses? I mean, I'll frequently hear a little pushback on earthquake you know, coverage you know, again, we're recording here in Toronto and technically there is a fault line not too far away, but I wouldn't say that, you know, any of us live in constant fear of an earthquake, you know, consuming Toronto. Do you ever get pushback on some of the clauses in your standard policies? And if so, do you push it back on the lender and blame it on us as for us requiring it? 
I mean, great loaded question. I think that <laughs> My favorite every, kind. yeah. So every, every circumstance guys requires its own evaluation. And I think that's something that's important. If you actually get to like the root of what insurance is, even personal insurance, just a sidebar for a second, personal insurance should reflect you as an individual and the way that you operate. So, you know, my personal insurance premium should be different from yours, Adam, not just because of where our the residences are that we live are different physical structures and in different neighborhoods and potentially totally different parts of the province, but also the way that you own it could be really different than the way that I own it. And so we think that's really important when contemplating larger commercial insurance, the way somebody owns an asset and the means in which they have to manage it or deal with it is going to be different from somebody else. So articulating the difference to an insurer is really important. And so similarly, so if a lender comes out and says, you need earthquake insurance because they've used a debt document you know, in template, and it's the initial drafts of what we expect the debt document to look like, we will advise people to say, if there's an insurance clause in here and we're in, you know, dead stark middle of Saskatchewan, then let's have a conversation about why this is actually in there. And if it means that we need to have a consultative discussion with you, the lender, and explain why is this in here, because we don't think it should be, then that conversation should totally take place and each one evaluated on its merit. But if it's templated for the sake of convenience and process, then we would say, you know, that's perhaps adversely affecting. Similarly so, you know, if there's a circumstance that warrants further insurance. So, you know, let's use an example of an industrial building is seeking debt and it's a single purpose, single tenant industrial building intended to, let's say, distribute something hazardous, pick your favorite hazardous substance. You know, if you're the lender, you should be having a specific conversation about potential environmental exposures where your templated or typical lender docs may not include that request or that specific discussion. And we would argue that maybe it makes sense for it to be there. So it's not a matter of pushing back so much, Adam, as I think it is understanding that each situation is unique and may warrant a further discussion. We see it all the time where you know requests are made that don't make sense. My concern is that too many people either aren't looking at it or aren't understanding it, and it kind of rolls through. I want to set the stage for a second for us. We're keeping it very micro and I want to go macro, but let's sure. stay here for let's stay here for one more bit. And Adam, maybe you have a follow-up question. On the underwriting, the insurance underwriting, the commercial real estate underwriting side, I mean, as a lender, I can think of, I mean, there's 20 ratios, but really it's the cap rate, the LTV and the debt service coverage. And if you give me those three numbers, I can probably... You know what, you do, you know what your deal looks like. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can juggle it around and come up with a pretty accurate, I mean, I might miss by a little bit, but let's call it, I'll be off by 5%. On your world, what are those metrics? What are the things that you look at when you're eyeballing a deal to kind of get a sense of what the premium should be and what the risk is. Yeah, great. So there's a couple things. One, square footage, replacement cost, geography, occupancy, cat exposure. What's that? Cat exposure is the macro conversation that you want to have, which is the catastrophic event exposure. So am I exposed to flood, hail, quake, wind, fire? Those will have an impact. So I'll just use an example. If you have a commercial mall retail mall in downtown Vancouver. There's a couple of components there. Similar to you, like we're going to look at occupancy. And so in this instance, it's commercial, which is your asset class conversation. That's going to be different than 
an industrial manufacturer closer to Richmond, British Columbia, closer to the airport, right? You're still in BC. So there's kind of a a rate for BC based on geography where you are. It is cat exposed to seismic activity and potentially flood if you're in the lower mainland. So you've got cat exposure. You've got, now you've got, you know, multi, if it's multi-tenanted commercial retail, you've got a certain sort of exposure to the public. And then you're looking at what's the square footage, how big is this, and then what's it going to cost me to replace in that region. And from there, we can kind of put together the details of the premium and then the rate meters. So the rate that we apply is really determined by those things. So if you've got cat exposure, we add a little bit to the rate pile. If you've got a loss history, which is the other thing that I didn't mention, we'll add a little bit to the rate pile. If you've got a pretty serious exposure to a neighbor, we might add a little bit to the rate pile there. But the trick, this goes back to my earlier micro comment too, Aaron, it's like, you want to really focus in on the individual property and the owner, because those can actually have deviations, just like you might in lending, there could be a rate for a certain borrower, because they've got track record and prudence, and you've investigated that. And that's more you know, it's more attractive to your organization. That deviation exists in insurance. So it's not just all these actual, there are actuarial like knobs and twists that sort of add together to get your total final rate. But there are some deviations when you can explain, hey, it's less likely to have a loss here or the loss if and when it does happen is going to be limited because of the mitigating activities that are being, you know, undertaken, then that has its work, it has its weight in the consideration. Maybe I can help you also, if I sidebar for you on the and potential pivot to the macro conversation, because I think understanding how insurance is priced is important. And then I think understanding where premium dollars go and how that impacts the global mm. market of insurance will be helpful. And I think using this and taking a dollar of premium into an organization and then what happens with it and why rates might move or not will be helpful. Would you like me to do that? Or did you want to follow Keep going. Don't stop. Don't stop. Okay. You keep Here going. Go. Yeah. So... One of the underwriting tactics, and let's just pretend for a second we were underwriters together, okay? It starts on the basis of relationship. Who and how you get to the insurer, I think, is important because ultimately the story gets represented to the insurer and they make decisions based on the story that they hear. And the story is comprised of all of the details we just discussed. So all the math and the rates and the metrics and the figures that go in to form the story, how that's organized, how it's articulated, how it gets presented. If it's super complex and sophisticated, does it read easily? Is there some way to surmise that? That's all like, that's the first impression. And it's really important because it sets the foothold for a relationship. The second piece is also understanding that the insurance company is going to look at the business in a couple of key ways. They use the history of a particular asset as a very strong basis for the future. If this building has had a history of losing lots or all the time, that is going to form their basis on what they expect it to do in the future. And so if you've got a loss history that shows on average over the last five years or after the last 10 years, this is what we expect to lose, you can appreciate that an underwriter shouldn't price the premium below what they expect to lose. Makes like pretty logical yeah. sense, right? Yeah, of course. So yeah. one way to look at it is take the history of losses, add in some distribution cost, add in some flexibility for profit. And there's your premium. 
And then you can adjust that based on other elements that you learn. You might need to add some of that based on what we think the cat exposure could be, or we need to add some of that because we think the owner is not responsible and or just rather than not responsible, we think the owner is going through transition because management is turning over and their attention to detail is probably going to be less than last year's because they're focused on other operational priorities this year. So all of those things come into a big pot. Then the insurer collects that premium and they hold that premium until they have to pay out on an event or a loss. And that premium while it's held is the float that they can invest. And they invest that money while they're holding it to pay out losses. And so the insurance company actually makes money in two ways. If they make money underwriting profitably, just in the example that we described, which is setting a price that should be greater than the amount of losses that it incurs, the insurance company should be achieving a profit, an underwriting profit. And the other way that the insurance company makes money is through investment return that they make on that premium dollar while it's sitting unused to pay losses. And so they have an investment book that they use to create a return. And that investment book is interesting and and really important because the government and most regulators around the world dictate where and what insurance companies can invest in. The idea being that there's a consumer protection element that, you know, if the insurance company is taking the premium with an obligation to pay out at a later date in the event of loss, and you're investing in venture capitalism or something. Sure. Or we're yeah. going to buy contract for difference oil futures right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and those bets don't play out. That's a problem for the consumer who is expecting the obligation to be fulfilled you know, under the contract that they've signed. So there are provisions the regulators put in place. And as of such, most of those provisions have a view on what an insurance company should or could be investing in. And a large portion of that view is towards fixed income. And typically in that fixed income, there's an outsized proportion that is allocated towards sovereign debt. So said differently, one of the largest consumers of Canadian treasury issuance are in fact insurance companies. And so you'll then appreciate if the dollar premium every consumer pays represents the float that insurance companies can then invest, those companies are then investing in Canadian treasury or in their respective jurisdictions, the the bond issuance, insurance companies all of a sudden become a really vital part of an economy. And they are consuming these, on a rolling basis, they're consuming these debt issuances. That's important because if yield in interest rate is at 0% or close to 0% or has been in decline towards 0% over the better part of the last decade, You can appreciate that the insurance company's profitability is probably limited as it relates to their profit generation from investment activity, which means there's an outsized focus then on the underwriting profitability to generate return at the insurance company. So now we've gone from the consumer, the commercial insurance company that's buying a dollar of premium for, call it a million dollars of response at a later future date in the event of loss. And that insurance company then turns around and needs to make money off of that from its investments. This focus on the underwriting profit is really important. The problem is, is insurance companies have not been successful on the underwriting profit side, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Attritional losses, so the losses they expect to happen, are happening at a rate and a severity that I don't think were anticipated. 
said differently, there have been more losses than expected. And the value of those losses have actually been higher than expected. And that's because, you know, a water damage claim that should be $50,000 in damage has now escalated to being $500,000 in damage because it started on the 30th floor of a residential tower and it's leaked down. That's a real problem for the insurance company if they thought that loss was only going to be $100,000 or $150,000 and they set their premiums on that basis. On an aggregated basis, the insurance companies are losing on their attritional losses. So their premiums hit that situation where they're not charging enough to manage those attritional losses. And there's a story why they haven't been charging enough. The reason why insurance rates are lower than the losses that they've been incurring has, I think, a direct result of a phenomenon that started in 2008 and arguably before that. So there's been an, if I could summarize it at a high level, there's been an oversupply of capital interested in participating in insurance In a typical supply-demand conversation, it has pushed rates down because of supply. And there's been lots of competition to retain existing books of business and to retain your portion in an oversupply. It's pushed the price down. And so competitive forces and oversupply have actually pushed the price down. The reason there's been oversupply, when 2008 hit and fixed income interest rates dropped, these pools of capital that I described investing in alternative assets or investing in real estate, these shifts in allocation have come as a result of you know, poor return profile in fixed income investments. So they look at different allocations. Okay, I'm going to improve my real estate allocation. I'm going to improve my infrastructure allocation. Hmm, I can actually make reasonable return by investing in insurance. It's not correlated to the stock market or the bond market. And if I'm investing or putting my capital into insurance vehicles, I should be able to get returns. So there was this same phenomena that real estate and infrastructure have experienced, which is these inflows of capital. Insurance saw the same, and it pushed the supply up and the prices down. And as the prices came down over that period of time, underwriters got really focused on almost call it portfolio underwriting rather than individual risk underwriting, it became, I need to keep my existing business because this oversupply wants my business. I better drop my price to stay in line. And so you saw this price pressure push down without the same focus on the losses. And the losses started to creep up and creep up and creep up. And then you introduce what happened in 2017 with the losses, Harvey, Irma, Maria, in 1617, the fires in California. You're talking about hurricanes. You're talking about now I'm, uh, now I'm talking like macro about events. Yeah. yeah, now I'm talking about catastrophic events. And those catastrophic events, in addition to this inverted underwriting profit, and that just like, boom, that hit the insurance markets. They started to calculate where they were. Okay, price is changing. We have to change the price of our insurance. And oh. there begins the hardening of the market. Okay, so let me kind of set the table a little bit more. And that even that's that's awesome, Jeff. I think that's a really interesting perspective or very well detailed. We're seeing real estate insurance prices increase. Clearly, now you've explained why 20, 30, 50% for a lot of our clients, certain segments of the market. And I can now I can explain it myself. Like I've been hearing condo corporation insurance going up six or seven hundred percent. And now I understand based on some conversations I've had, it's a result of, you know, they were misunderwritten 
for a long time because that history of loss was probably not appreciated on the condo corporation insurance level. If you, your example of a, a leak, a flood in the 30th floor of a condo tower filtering all the way through, that's not picked up by every individual tenant's insurance. That's picked up by the condo board's insurance. And I think there's been more of that than was underwritten or was expected. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but let me keep going. So I don't know how these are connected, but I think they are. So let me just ask you, what is reinsurance? And explain to me what the hell Lloyd's of London is. And how does, oh, that, how does that participate? How does that correlate? If we keep going, we're going higher and higher and higher and upwards, I think, right? From, from our micro conversation to a macro conversation. So what's going on now with those two topics? Yeah, so reinsurance will take us back up. So let's go back to the insurance company now making an underwriting profit or trying to make an underwriting profit. And the way they're trying to return to profitability right now is by adjusting price. And uh, increasing we, premiums. You mean increasing premiums? Correct. Right, That's right, correct. Right. Yeah. yeah. And how fast is that? How fast do companies respond to the miscalculations? Instantly, right? Well, yeah, it's happening pretty. It's happening right now at breakneck speed. And there's a. I think there's an element of this will be helpful when I speak about Lloyd's of London. It can take some time, Adam, for the market to correct. And we kind of there's been a history of being in hard and soft cycles in insurance, right? Not dissimilar to the debt cycle that's sort of seven to 10 years long, you'll see the short-term debt cycle anyway. The insurance soft and hard market cycle has traditionally kind of come and gone and it can be anywhere from you know five years to 10 years. We've been in a prolonged soft cycle because there hadn't, there hadn't ever been so much supply coming into the market. And the supply came in the form of reinsurance in many ways. And so I'll explain the reinsurance. The thing that I think Adam is finishing my thought on the speed. Sometimes the underwriters, it takes a while to actually adjust the loss. So you might be having, you know, a water damage loss pop off. And so January, you had one water damage. And then February, you had three water damage. In March, you had six. And maybe on that quarterly review in the underwriting house or in the insurer, you go, hang on a second. We had like, we had 15 water damage losses this quarter versus six before and these are getting more expensive we better address like we should watch this in the second quarter so you might not see it but then in the second quarter you know let's say the trend continues come the third quarter they're going to be like okay we're changing a couple of things the deductible goes up so that the front line or the customer experiences more of the risk they share with us and we're going to charge a little bit more rate for every dollar of insurance that we're going to make available in order to make up for these losses that we've seen in the past two quarters. So it's not like overnight. And this, I would argue, has been moving since the storms kind of came through and the catastrophic losses put pressure on the insurers to go, now we got to pay these catastrophic losses. We need to like readjust the whole books. And it's been happening, I would argue, over the last two years, we've been coming a little like firmer in our position. And now I think we're and correcting rate. Now we're actually getting into like, the insurers are trying to harden and, and return to profitability. Going back to reinsurance, reinsurance is effectively insurance for insurers. So when you think about the dollar of premium that the commercial real estate customer paid, the underwriters taking some, the underwriters putting some aside for the losses, the underwriters paying the broker, and then the underwriter is buying insurance. So that in the event of a catastrophic loss, they are not going to be bankrupt. They're actually putting it on so that others participate in it. Does that so make sense? Yeah. So if I'm a reinsurer and I'm watching this go on over the last couple of years where my 
clients, I guess, who have been uploading or downloading the insurance onto me, yet they've been misunderwriting all of this stuff. Why am I participating in this market? Well, because there's no such thing as a bad risk, just a bad price. Great. So, Quote, write that down, Adam. Write that down. <laughs> so, so the reinsurers are really driving a large portion of the rate movement. You'll appreciate that if you're a reinsurer and you're exposed to a massive hurricane because you're reinsuring four uh, coastal Florida insurance companies and you take each of their losses into your own book for hurricane losses, then you're going to turn around and say, hey, guys, like the price for hurricane insurance is going to be different this year. But and if I'm Credit Suisse, if I'm Credit Suisse, wouldn't I just look at that and go, you know what? I got way other less risky businesses. I'm just going to stop participating in the reinsurance market. Great point. Super important point. So what happens when supply comes out of a market? Well, the price goes up. Prices go up. So you're now experiencing supply retrench in the reinsurance capacity. So the prices are like, it's loss driven and then it's capacity driven. So if there's less capacity or less interest in participating, then the price is going to go up a little bit. And when that translates down to the actual insurance company, so I'm now coming back down to earth to the real estate company who's trying to just insure their damn building in Vancouver, they need to think about, okay, the insurance company, my loss history is okay. I'm not totally clean. The insurance company is going to take a portion and try and price for that. Then the insurance company is going to look at their reinsurance costs. They're up. And then the insurance company is going to say to me, the rate of insurance that's available is more than it was last year because that's how I'm going to make up for these additional costs that I have. And then to your point, I actually don't like insuring real estate as much as I thought I did. So I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to do it at this new price and I'm not going to give you as much as I had last year. So now what's happening is you're seeing the reason that it's going up and so dramatically when you reference 30 and 40%, I'm not seeing quite that steep. And we'd love to talk to those people who are seeing it. But I think the phenomenon is really the number of players in the market that have that appetite is shrinking as well. So if one insurance company insured it last year, you might need two insurance companies to insure it this year. And those two insurance companies combining their pools will then, you know, there'll be a negotiation on what's the agreed rate to get there. And that's where our role becomes really important, which is structuring. And so not unlike debt, there are structures that are really efficient. And then there are structures that are less efficient. And that's part of the conversation that needs to happen here in a rising price environment with reducing supply, how you structure and what you have becomes really important. And it's amazing when price moves as quickly or as fast as it has been in this, you know, certainly in the first quarter of this year, and I would argue from the middle of the second quarter last year, where we've seen movement, I think you like, there's a question, there's a lot more people asking questions about what their insurance is what it does, how it works than there was four years ago or five years ago. But as you've just heard from me, nobody was really focused on that because pricing was shallowing out. And the reason pricing was shallowing out is because there was an oversupply of capital and we hadn't experienced those major catastrophic losses as we had in consequence, which might lead to another question around like, well, okay, what about climate change? Fires are not getting fewer and less severe, they're becoming more frequent and having more of an impact. The quake when it hits is going to be a real event. Like that's going to be a real problem. Does that help 
Aaron? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, I got seven questions now. <laughs> I, I can only think of two or three of them, though. Let's go to Lloyd's of London first, and then let's okay. get back into... Just explain it. Lloyd's, Mine, the best way is, to It's going Lloyd's. away, right? It's, it's going away? Like, it's being dissolved or no, disassembled no, or something? No, I would say that that's not accurate information, but it's Lloyd's has evolved because it's so old. And so what and is it? What, is it? what, what the, heck, it what the heck is it? Yeah. The best way to describe it and the most effective way to describe it is Lloyd's of London is effectively like the St. Lawrence market. Okay. Lloyd's of London. I, I can buy fish at the, at the Lloyd's of London. So you're going to laugh at me for this, but it's the most effective analogy that I've been able to find. Lloyd's of London is a marketplace. It's basically a building where you can go in and trade. And so let me explain the role of a caterer. And this is kind of how I think about my role as a broker. But as a caterer who needs to go to a marketplace to buy food for the meal, I am a broker that needs to go to a marketplace to find insurance for my customer. Does that kind of hinge and connect? Okay. Yeah. So okay. now you've got the St. Lawrence market has meat stalls, fish stalls, vegetable stalls, cheese, specialty, caviar, etc. Lloyd's of London has you know, property stalls, liability stalls, terrorism stalls, environmental stalls. And each of the insurance companies pays a fee to be there for their seat, to be inside the marketplace. And that allows them to then interact with those market participants that come in. So if you're a caterer, you sit down with your client and you say, well, what's the meal? What are you serving? What do you want to serve? Why do you want to serve that? Are we celebrating somebody? Is it a death? Is it a birth? Is it a wedding anniversary? Is it a birthday party? Is it a boozy crowd? Is it like, are you trying to impress somebody? Like, what are we doing? Okay, so we're trying to impress Aaron and we're going to go lobster on lobster. It's really important to have great lobster. And I don't really care about the ancillary. Just get me great lobster, lots of beer, and who can, potato salad. I don't care. It could be from Costco. You nailed me. No, you nailed me. No, <laughs> so it's no different when you think about, okay, what's your business do? You own specialty high street retail. You're going to have a real focus on commercial retail, your liability program, your liability insurers, the most important part of that menu, what you need to buy. So then you go into St. Lawrence and you're like, okay, I need lobster. I'm looking for lobster on lobster. You're going to go to the steak guy, the guy selling beef for your lobster? Probably not. So you get to know over time who sells beef, who sells lobster, who sells vegetables. Lloyd's is no different. Over time, you get to know who sells liability really well, who does liability especially well for real estate versus manufacturing, or who sells property or who sells terrorism, so that you're not having to go to the meat guy and get average lobster from the meat guy at a price that's mispriced. You want to go to a specialist for that feature dish. But for the rest of your dish, you might go to the supermarket. You might not even go into Lloyd's of London or the St. Lawrence. You might go to Costco because you're like, I just need a whole bunch of that. Does that make so sense? Is Lloyd's, Lloyd's is one big, huge building with a whole bunch of insurance people sitting there. You walk in and just order stuff. So like, like, how does it work? Correct. That's exactly right. You go into a building, there's a trading floor, underwriters sit at their desks and they wait for brokers to represent risks from around the world to come in and have them presented. And it's a couple hundred years old. It's 400 years old. It used to be called Edward Lloyd's Coffee Shop. And what's really important about this, guys, is at the time, those with capital or with money could afford to drink coffee. So they would gather at the coffee shop and it became the trading place. If you owned a ship, you were probably wealthy. You were a merchant. So you were having coffee. You're a ship owner. 
and there'd be a handful of other people in the coffee shop that were also ship owners. But what would happen is the attendants at Lloyd's would come around and they'd say, uh, you know, Mr. Charles, Mr. Aaron over here would like you to evaluate his next voyage. And I would get a piece of paper that says, you know, the name of your ship, who's captaining it, where it's going, when it's going there, what its purpose was. And then they drew a line on the page. And then people would literally underwrite the details of the risk and they would subscribe to a portion of the upside and subscribe to a portion of the downside. And so Lloyd's is a subscription market. You get a little bit from a lot of people. So if you have, let's just say you had a terrorism risk in downtown Toronto. So you, you've got a building in downtown Toronto and you want to get terrorism insurance. You'd go potentially go to Lloyd's and you'd say, I have this building. It's in downtown Toronto. I need terrorism insurance. And so we would be, imagine walking into the Lloyd's of London, St. Lawrence Marketplace and going, okay, which is the terrorism box? You go to the terrorism box and you get someone to put up a signature, an underwrite, or they're going to underwrite the details of the exposure. And they would say, okay, for downtown Toronto, for this period of time with this owner of this building, I'm good for 30% of the loss. And then we would turn around and say, okay, we have a 30% line. Who else wants in? And so you go from stall to stall in the terrorism corner of the marketplace. And we get people to subscribe up to 100% of the risk. And so Lloyd's, when it gets thrown around, is representative of several insurance companies. And the value proposition Lloyd's presents is that they've gone through the work to make sure that a Lloyd's of London policy is a brand name in many jurisdictions around the world, particularly here in Canada. So Lloyd's would stand next to all the other major insurers in Canada, except it represents a marketplace where lots of people are subscribing. Does that help? How's it? Yeah, how's it changing? What is face the what to, is the change? Yeah. Face-to-face interaction is really important in an environment like that. You get to know really you can appreciate a market like that's pretty interesting. Imagine selling lobster from your stall at the St. Lawrence and you keep getting the same like wacky character coming up to you being like, "Okay, how about the uh, how about the Japanese lobster, but today you're going to sell it to me for 12 cents less than the Canadian Atlantic lobster." And you as the distributor are like, "Get out of here. Like, I am not dealing with that right now. This person doesn't understand the market or they're bringing me like these crazy clients that are making, you know, like I want the lobster filleted in a certain way because I like the way it flares up on my barbecue. So you're like, no, I'm just not going to cut my product that way. The same thing exists in the Lloyd's marketplace where your reputation is the most important thing that you have. And the way you conduct yourself is really important. And so a lot of that is evaluated on a face-to-face basis. The underwriter trusts the broker or doesn't and price and terms and details are impacted by that. And so when you think about the fact that that's so important in the underwriting, this guy goes back to my very first comments about how how an insurer receives a risk, the story that gets told. It's really important. And the color in which and the way in which somebody runs their business or this is how I own my real estate. It's really, you know. Adam's real estate portfolio and the way he thinks about it is really different than Aaron's, particularly as it relates to risk. And so to convey that story, you need color, you need relationship, you need personal communication to convey some of those things. If it's only analytically derived, then everybody could potentially have a bad price. And so I think that what comes and gets challenged in the Lloyd's environment is the, do we really need to be face to face? Is this really all important? And you know, as it 
tries to evolve and digitalize, it's not cheap. It's some of the most expensive commercial real estate out there, right? To own a box on the floor at Lloyd's is not cheap. I think lots of people are evaluating, does this mode of transacting, is it still relevant when you contemplate all the digital capability that's out there? And so I think there's questions about potentially pulling capital out of Lloyd's. And rather than being in Lloyd's, I'll just open an office in Canada. We've seen this come and go over time. I think we're in a period where we're proving, particularly with the impacts of COVID, we're like proving our resilience to needing to be connected to Lloyd's. But at the same time, I think a lot of people are like, these risks aren't getting underwritten right now because I can't talk to anybody about them. You mentioned analytics as being part of it. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Lloyd's of London would be doing some of the weirder stuff too. You hear about like insuring a boxer's hands for a million dollars. Am I wrong in that? And that would be, I assume, less of an analytic case and more of just a... So it's innovation. It's innovation, Adam. You can get more done where groups of people subscribe. So in North America, it's like, you know, one or two insurers will take 100% of the risk. And so if there's a loss, one or two insurers lose. In Lloyd's, you might insure a boxer's hands for a million dollars. So that's the premium that you collect. What am I paying out? Is it $10 million? So, okay, so 10 guys split a million dollars each and they get their $100,000 each for that risk. That guy losing his hands doesn't hurt as many people. And so the Lloyd's market allows you to spread a risk around a room really quickly and innovate. So if you think about it, going back to why do I buy insurance? Do Am I legally obligated to or am I actually protecting my own risks? Think about innovations in the world like the Panama Canal and the building and development of the Panama Canal, the launch of rockets into space, particularly as we contemplate human travel, things like artificial intelligence or things like medical devices. Imagine the first like synthetic heart transplant Imagine the liability insurance wasn't underwritten by people. We might not see the facilitation of innovation if insurance isn't there. And I would argue that Lloyd's continues to be the heartbeat of innovation. You know, that's probably a good, let's transition into where we are. I think everybody can hear by the sound where we're all clearly not sitting in the same room, you know, in isolation, in quarantine. It's April 27th today. Jesus, it's almost the end of April. We're now six weeks, seven weeks into this sort of world of quarantine. Jeff, I'm curious how COVID has impacted your business. And you were talking about innovation earlier. So maybe just one of the things that surprised you or what type of challenges is your company and is your business experiencing as a result of COVID? Yeah. So it's a good question, Aaron. And it's been, it's really obviously very relevant. So first and foremost, Gallagher as an organization has a really strong and global presence in real estate activity, you know, UK, LA, New York, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, everywhere at Montreal, Toronto and Canada is really relevant, but this is now sort of expanding into the power of the global organization and where I've been, I personally, and as an organization, we've been beneficiaries of being able to connect with our colleagues around the globe on what they're experiencing. This is one of those unique moments where a truly global organization becomes truly powerful, particularly if they can communicate well. And I must say, I admire how Gallagher has been dealing with this together. A couple of things on COVID. The biggest surprise for me, was not the business interruption. The business interruption, and I'll just be quick on it, was really like relatively straightforward, in my opinion, and in conference with my colleagues. Property damage, business interruption is part of a property policy. And typically what happens is, is you have a physical loss, like a fire or a water damage event, that might prevent you from 
collecting rent because the tenant has to vacate. And as a result of that damage, your business has been interrupted. In this context, everything in the policy remains true. You need a property damage trigger. Property damage needs to have occurred for the business interruption policy to respond. And so very early on, we concluded that, look, there isn't a property damage trigger here. We don't anticipate or expect the property, the business interruption portion of the policies to respond. That being said, we've also suggested that it makes sense to have clarity from your insurance company. So we've been suggesting, look, going back to my earlier points, each is unique and should be unique. Go and have a conversation about how your policy responds or doesn't. And then there's a few nuances to this where you know there could be specific exclusionary language or there could be some extension language that provides some form of cover, but maybe not to the full amounts. Each and every situation needs to be evaluated on its own. My fear is that everybody's you know on a general basis saying one thing or the other. The only thing I'll say on the business interruption front is work with your providers to understand your policy, get clarity. There should be clarity. You can get clarity. Just make sure you have the conversation to get the clarity. And if that clarity extends to having a conversation with the insurance company directly, do it. On the things that surprised me was the vacancy clause. And this is not because we're not playing heads up hockey here. This was like, we, I think in the context of all of the things that could impact us, we didn't expect to necessarily have to jump on this the way that we have, which was most policies, this extends to construction as well. Most policies have a cessation of coverage or vacancy clause as it relates to real estate specifically. If a site is not vacant, or excuse me, if a site is not occupied or attended for a period of time, the the coverage could potentially cease if there's a vacancy. Now, you say that generally, and you get a bunch of landlords together, and you know, chaos can ensue, and you might need to put on some armored cover because it's like, well, what if it's partially occupied? What if I have units in a multi-tenanted space that's, you know, some are out, some are in, some of it's voluntary, some of it's as a result of the emergency state, all these pieces coming together, it comes back to go back to your policy. Do you actually have a vacancy? You do. Can you get it extended? Can you communicate about your circumstances? Are your property management functions continuing? Go and strike or seek an agreement with your insurance company so that you know how that clause might impact you or not. But I would say at the outset, this rolled really quickly. And for those policies that have time limits on vacancy, often it's 30 days. It could be 120 days. Again, each policy is unique. For those that had 30-day vacancy clauses, you'll appreciate this move really quickly. So there were some conversations with, at least in our world, you know, we had some conversations with our clients, made them aware, talked to the insurers about, you know, what they're going to actually do in these circumstances and tried to successfully negotiate extensions of that. So it's like, it's not 30 days, it's actually 60, or it's not 60, it's 180. And to give the insurance companies some credit here, I don't think they were ever trying to pile on and create confusion by not being clear on this. I think their intent has always been to be try and be supportive here. But you'll appreciate a vacant space tends to produce more losses than one that is occupied because people are visually observing or physically present when losses occur. And so the vacancy thing was one that was kind of a, well, we need to do something. The change in use was another one. We saw some pivoting of tenants and or organizations willing to you know participate in the frontline crisis and either you know providing temporary space for manufacturing of face masks and shields or temporary space for testing or a potential blood donation like 
again, an insurer's intent is to insure the building as it's described to them in that story and the details that were provided to them. If that story is now changed, that presents a shift or a material change in risk. And you know, you as the underwriter might price that differently. This was less about repricing and just being aware of like what is the exposure that is changing under our feet and in real time. We as an organization, I think, and I greatly appreciate what they've done to support us in the front line, you know, early communication on talking to insurers and early communication on pandemic response. If you go to the Gallagher website, you'll see there's this, there's a whole specific section on managing the response in the pandemic. The only other thing that I'm starting to think about are, and it's less about innovations. We haven't seen major innovation come from Lloyd's or others. You know, pandemic is going to now be excluded. I can almost assure that in certain circumstances, there's going to be a specific exclusion for pandemic to be very clear on this so that, you know, there are no gray areas or questions going forward. And it's likely an insurance market will evolve as a result of that. So I'll just really quickly, terrorism was excluded very quickly after 9-11. Now there's a very full and robust marketplace for buying terrorism insurance. I imagine pandemic or communicable disease cover will be specifically excluded. And then similarly, so those that understand the risk will truly underwrite it and put coverage together. So I do think that is the innovation that's coming out of this. We're seeing some balance sheet. Our focus has not necessarily been around innovating the pandemic response product at this moment. It's been much more focused on our customers' management through the circumstances. And so we've been really focused on protecting the balance sheet or trying to do things around protecting the balance sheet. And that includes such things as reevaluating your deductibles. Can you take them up? Are you in a position to increase your deductibles and reduce the premium so that you can either get return of premium or adjust your premium outlay? It's like a cash flow assistance or if you know, as a matter of fact, that you're going to be out of income due to businesses that are actually, you know, bankrupt, or you know, you know that you can't bank on rents because of any number of circumstances that may prevent you from earning what you thought you were going to earn, can you adjust your exposure base? Don't pay for insurance that you're not ultimately going to need or respond to. So if your insurance is based off of a certain projection of rents and you know that those rents are not going to be achieved, make the adjustments to your insurance to see if you can't free up some cash. And then the other thing is that insurance premiums can be financed and not a lot of people are aware of that or have means to or access to groups that'll do that. And so you can, you can finance the premium. So can you create a situation where we can return premium outlay and then help manage cash flow? Certainly for the smaller landlords or those that are really cash strapped through this process, we've kind of been focusing on those items. And we as lenders, Jeff, obviously we're super interested to see what how the insurance industry responds because it's been uh, it's been majorly disruptive to us. If we were looking forward for you know for a silver lining into any of this, what would you say lies ahead for us? This is the part where we end on a happy note. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Listen, I ultimately believe that, and I'm part of the reason, aside from seeking resilience in the insurance industry as a operating thesis in my career and my life. I also ultimately think that we do the right things at the right times to support. And so there's an altruistic component to bringing things back to life. You'll appreciate in the early days, you know, the insurers were the ones that owned the fire brigades to help, you know, minimize the loss. And regardless if something's insured or not, a loss is still a loss. And so even when it is insured, it doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing negative things. So I remain committed to making sure that people feel supported through this 
process, that's been a big silver lining is just reaching out to people and letting them know that we're here. And even though this policy or this clause or this circumstance might not be what they want to hear, I think giving clarity and comfort has been a been a silver lining, at least on a personal level. I'm connecting with people in a way that I haven't. From an industry perspective, I think we're going to get smarter about how to protect certain exposures. You know, when we think about coming back to work, liabilities and all those types of things are going to be thought of and need to be addressed. But the biggest thing, and this is specific to real estate, I think the excitement that I have for what comes as a result of this for real estate is the silver lining. I think business owners and real estate owners are going to become very creative with their space. They're going to think about this over the short term around like, is my space resilient? Is my space appropriate for the new age? Will workplace configurations evolve? Will more people work from home? And how do we take advantage of creating more vibrant workplaces that continue to attract people to come to the office? Like, I think the creativity and the innovation that's going to come out of real estate is going to be amazing to watch. And I think, you know, real estate owners are resilient people and arguably some of the most creative people in our marketplace. They're literally creating the communities in which we interact and live, and they're creating the homes for even further innovation. And so I think there's not enough real estate owners, operators, and market participants that are given credit around creativity. And I'm really excited by the creativity that's going to come out here by the real estate business. I think the silver lining is that things they wouldn't have thought of doing or that they have maybe preserved or put on the back burner for doing because it was too edgy or too out there. I think some of those things are going to come to light. Right. That's, uh, we both, uh, Aaron, I appreciate this super deep dive into insurance. I'd say we came in somewhat ignorant towards it and that we've left somewhat lightened, somewhat confused still, but uh, it was super interesting to talk about, you know, the various levels of insurance that extend you know, way beyond the level of, you know, where Aaron and I interact with it. It was just at the property level on a deal by deal basis. It's amazing the whole world that exists out there. And again, see how you're adapting. Adam, I mean, I'll make a bit of a joke. Like the part of the confusion is why you actually, you actually need a guide. The first time, if you went into the St. Lawrence market for the first time with a guide, would you return the second time and be a smarter buyer, a better buyer? Would you have a better sense of what you needed? And I would have gone so, straight to Buster's at the back, right? Yeah, it took, me, it, took, it took me years to get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And if, yeah. So I, listen, I, I'm sorry, insurance can be a deep dive and it can be boring for lots of people. It's like, it's this weird mix of legalese and finance. And I think too many organizations defer it in their organization. They get frustrated by it because it's either going up or they don't understand why it's going up or it's not paying and they don't understand. We've distilled this to like, look, clarity is available. With clarity comes comfort and with comfort comes an interest to potentially understand more. And so listen, if we've provided you any more clarity today, great. If we've kept it a little bit confusing, it's because we want you to call us. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it was well executed then. It was a good mix of both. And if yeah. we ever need Aaron's beautiful lending mine insured for a million dollars, we'll know where to come then. Uh, that's right. Only, but we'd only ha- we have to go lobster on lobster to talk about yeah, it. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, we want, that was wonderful. Yeah we, yeah, we want to thank First National for powering the podcast today. We want to thank Real Estate Forums for setting up this interview with Jeff. And of course, foremost of all, we want to thank Jeff for participating today. Thanks a lot, Jeff. No, thank you, gents. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP 
holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252. The information from this podcast is not to be relied upon as financial, investing, professional, accounting, insurance, risk management, or legal advice. Arthur J. Gallagher Canada Limited does not make any representations or warranty, either expressed or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the information provided in this podcast and will not bear any liability relating to or resulting from the use of this information or any errors or omissions.